Chapter 18 An hour or so later, I sat alone on the small patio of my hot springs cottage, as lingering shadows deepened into a dusk that seemed to go on forever. The afternoon wind that the natives call the chocomil had started to die down to a gentle breeze against my face. I was ensconced in an aluminum beach chair that I'd carried out to where I could see most of the lake. At some point, I found myself wondering if Michael was still over there with his son. I tried to focus on remembering what I'd seen and heard and felt over at Bernardo's, but my mind had a mind of its own, and it didn't want to focus there at all. Oh, but then a jagged memory pushed into my awareness of that moment when I'd felt myself seeing through the eyes of Ursi's Nocalito projection. I popped back and was again gazing over at the volcano as all those shadows grew imperceptibly still longer across the lake. My eyes came to rest on the vague, misty presence of the town of Santiago Atitlan at the foot of the volcano, and I remembered that tomorrow morning, very early, I'd be headed across that green-black expanse of water to reunite with the amazing creature who'd suddenly appeared in the hot springs cavern like a cowboy's ultimate luminary vision. Having once again seen and touched and kissed and this time fully opened up to her at the wildest levels, and equally she to me, I felt now content to just relax and breathe and trust in the flow. It had, after all, brought me right here overlooking the dusky mystery of this magical lake. And right now, there was nothing more. What more could there be? I could almost viscerally feel her out there somewhere, alongside the lake, tuning into me. The sun was now gone. Twilight was busy dimming the world into slumber, as the lake transformed itself into a bottomless indigo wishing well. I remembered how for weeks I'd been hungry to escape academic routines and drive solo down to the tip of Baja. Somehow I'd ended up much farther south. I had plenty of cash in my bank account, enough to live a simple life down here for a couple years or more. I could sit down here and get my head and heart together and maybe, who knows, write a book that could make a difference. Maya and I could settle in somewhere peaceful and just, you know, chill for a while. Half a dozen soft lamplights came on, lining the walkway up to the main building, and I could feel hunger beginning to grip at my belly. So, taking a couple more breaths of the cool scented air, I rose and flowed along with my gut desire to find something tasty to gobble. Following the path uphill a hundred yards to the dining patio, I entered a sudden buzz of tourist dining. This place reminded me of unusual restaurants where Anthony Bourdain's ghost might still be found munching away. I strolled over and laid claim to the one empty outdoor table. 
benign chatter, mostly in European tongues, was emerging from four sedate couples. There was also an American family with three rambunctious kids making a totally acceptable youthful racket over in the far corner. Without warning, Francesca appeared from behind me. How'd she done that? I understand that your vehicle will be returned to you here sometime tomorrow, she said alto voce. Her eyes seemed to actually be glistening. Ah, good, I said. And perhaps, she went on, you and I can talk later. Sure, I said. Feeling daring, I decided on stuffed quail, because I'd never had stuffed quail before. Good, very good, quail, she said. And then she was gone. From where I was sitting, I could just make out the high jutting ridge that hid Bernardo's Villa from this northern part of the lake. I imagined him sitting up there, alone or with Ursula, and perhaps with Michael, all three looking out over the same impenetrable darkness. That thought of Bernardo snapped my mind into action focus. I stood up and walked between tables into the coolness of the Hacienda lobby, where I found a local land phone on the wall. And just then, Francesca happened to enter the room. I want to phone Bernardo, I said to her. Do you know his number? What? she asked, reacting. He asked me to come over in the morning, I explained. I was just wanting to confirm. Any problem with that? She frowned at me. I'm not sure what is optimum for tomorrow morning, she said. El Maestro is over there visiting Bernardo right now for the first time since they're falling apart. Yeah, I know, I said. So how about the number? All right, then. 811-360. She walked off toward the kitchen. Music started playing on the outdoor stereo. Some new guys singing something that sounded like my dad's Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and, um, Young. And while I listened to the advanced harmonies, I dialed Bernardo's number. Hello, a gruff male answered in Spanish. Um, I said, is Bernardo there? I will take a message. This is Jack Hadley. Tell Bernardo I want to come over after breakfast tomorrow morning. Tell him to send a boat to pick me up at nine o'clock sharp. I will send the boat, the man said. Whoever it was on the phone over there hung up abruptly. Just as I was ready to head out to the patio to find out what it was like to eat calle en escabecho, Francesca reappeared. Jack, she said, we must talk. Now, please give me five minutes alone inside. She led me into the interior of the graceful but aging hacienda, we went down a hallway, around a corner, and through a door, and she locked the door after me and took me into a large living room, most likely her own private quarters. She sat down on a worn but quality sofa and indicated for me to join her. So you know Ursula well? I asked her. She's a distant friend, she responded evenly. And those other people at Bernardo's Via... They're your friends, too? She held my eyes strongly. 
Please, Jack, let's not talk like this. We are on the same side. I keep telling people, I told her, I'm not taking sides. But I must know, she went on. Did Mahi come? Did you meet her in the cave? Uh, that depends, I said. Juan, the reality is that two years ago, Bernardo came and asked me for a sizable sum of money to infiltrate Michael and Mahi's world. So, yes, through my small version of the double agent, Michael now receives information from me about what I learned from working with Bernardo, supposedly spying on Michael. So I know that Michael went to drop the jade into the lake for Mahi to swim in and find. But you unexpectedly were there, and then Kemado and his brutes came almost an hour too soon. So tell me now, Jack, did you see Mahi? Did she get the piece? Okay, yeah, she did. She got it. But then Francesca went on, worried. What about your phone call just now to Bernardo? You are going back over there tomorrow? Is there somewhere else you think I should go tomorrow morning, I asked, just to make sure? My instructions, she told me, are to provide you with safe or at least possible passage early tomorrow morning to the mailboat so that you can travel to Santiago Atilan incognito and there be guided to Mahalena. So there. Satisfied? All right, I said, yeah. And I called over to Bernardo's for the boat to pick me up at nine, just to throw him off track. Ah, I see, she said. Well, that was a wise move. So I asked her, how will I get to the mailboat without being seen? Well, there are already Kemalo's men outside my wall, she informed me, but we can outmaneuver them. Let's go outside now, and I'll bear witness to you gobbling up all those sweet, innocent quail. After dinner, I asked to borrow her cell phone to call California. Please don't discuss anything specific, she said. I watched her walk away from my table. Most of the diners were gone now, out strolling in the moonlight or off in their cottages. Francesca took a chair with the remaining couple on the patio and started chatting in French with them. I was actually coming to like her very much. It's curious how consciousness works, how people pop into my mind out of the associative blue, I have a colleague who's studying all of that. Anyway, I sat in the balmy evening, sipping coffee, feeling unusually good in my belly as an aftermath to my hot springs union with Mahi. And out of the blue, I again got hit with the impulse to phone my mom. Hey, I said when she answered, so how's the holiday going up there for you? Ah, Jack, finally. Where are you? I'm down south, Guatemala, at the lake I visited when I was down here in high school. Remember? Atitlan, of course. Are you down there with that lovely girl I met at the cottage? I, yep. Good flow. Just wanted to touch base with you. 
let you know where I am and wish you holiday cheer and all that. Well, we're here in San Anselmo at the cottage, she told me. Big fire going. I wish you were here, dear. Larry is still wanting to talk with you. He can't hold that position at Alpha open forever, you know. Please, Mom, tell him to let it go. I'm not Google material. In fact, I'm thinking of doing something entirely different for a while. Write a book, grow some veggies, uh, who knows. Look, I gotta run. Just wanted to let you know it's all okay on my side. Oh, by the way, who originally taught you about the whole high heart thing? Ah, she said, that great chakra expansion model. It's found originally, as I remember, somewhere way back in the Hindu sutras, written thousands of years ago, you know. Well, I don't know. That's why I'm asking, I said. Well, actually, I remember your ex mentioning some new high heart meditation teacher. But in our time, I think it was Yogananda who first talked about the fourth chakra being two distinct realms. The lower heart being the center for fear-based emotions like anger, blame, anxiety, shame, hatred, and so forth. And the high heart being an entirely different quality of human emotion. All the universal virtues like compassion, trust, uh, cooperation, joy, acceptance, hope, faith. And I now remember Osho up in Oregon one night. You remember him, Bhagwan Rajneesh, talking about it too. And yes, Ramdas also. But now I remember, it was Joel Kramer, the yoga teacher up in Bolinas, who taught me the most about all of that. He taught that we always, each moment, have the choice of being high or low. Why do you ask about the high heart? Well, Mahi, the woman you met, she's into it. Ah, then you can do no wrong. Well, you know, to be honest, I admitted, sometimes I get the nagging suspicion that I'm not in touch with my own heart hardly at all, high or low. Yes, well, she responded, that would be your daddy's influence. Overly smart people tend to lose touch with their feelings. And also, you know the Hadleys had a real hard time generation after generation in the old days, heading farther and farther west. Your ancestors on his side had to get real tough in the heart, just to survive. Sometimes I think America's just one giant staggering PTSD casualty at least at the high heart level. Healing that condition is what drives Larry, you know. Yeah, anyway, I said, thanks for the info on high heart. Are you bringing your mahi back with you? She asked. I hope so, but it's complex, real complex down here. I sat quietly after we hung up. And I realized there was someone else suddenly on my mind. I still knew her number by heart, so I punched it in and waited while it rang, imagining her turning, reaching for her cell phone. And right then, I realized that it finally didn't hurt me anymore to call her. 
Hello, I heard her voice. Hey, I said, just me, just thinking of you. Thought I'd touch base and wish you all the best in the new year and all. Just wanted to let you know I'm done, finally, with the transition. No more hard feelings. All good on your side? Well, she said, not really. I'm here alone in Tahoe, but I don't want to talk about it. Are you, well, with someone for the holidays? Mostly, I said. Hey, you remember talking about the high heart thing with me? Oh, of course, but that's a very sore point. Edward, you know, that's his fixation. And last week, in his most gracious and expansive high heart mode, he was told by his inner sage or muse or whatever that it was time for him to explore new realms of being without me dragging him down. So I say, fuck him. Ah, I said, sorry to hear it. Well, what goes around, she said, comes around, I guess. Look, I was just heading out the door. Will you keep in touch? I'm coming back down next week from Tahoe. I have no idea what's happening next, I told her. Well, you're an angel to call me, she said, after all we've been through. And we hung up. It must have been about three or four hours later that I woke up with a start. Who's there? I mumbled, still mostly asleep, but certain there was someone in my room whose presence had woken me up. I reached for my travel flashlight and aimed it all around the room. There was no one there. So I got up and, still half expecting an intruder, stumbled into the bathroom to pee. Nothing. The thought occurred to me that it had perhaps been Mahi, not her in person, but somehow her in some other form. My ex had believed fervently in the science behind ghosts. She'd been smart as well as psychic and could talk your leg off, as my granddad would say, about how non-locality and quantum intent can project your presence anywhere you want to be. Was Mahi trying to make contact with me? Was she in trouble? But the longer I sat there on my bed, feeling open to her somehow suddenly appearing, the less I felt her presence in the room. I remembered with a slight jolt that at dawn I'd have to be up in action gear, so I lay down again, pulled the covers up to my chin, and closed my eyes. I could vaguely imagine Mahi also in bed somewhere, maybe awake too. The jade piece lurched into my inner view. A flood of memories surged through my mind, of seeing that stone sculpture at the museum, seeing Mahi grab it and stuff it into her purse, then me touching its cold tip at her cottage, and the next night glancing at it on the mantle down at her grandfather's, then making love in Chiapas with it hidden in my camper during all that real phallic stuff Mahi and I had slipped into, and then somehow the thing had remained invisible at the border, only to reappear during the ceremony at Michael's, and finally 
Just hours ago, the peace had been right there beside us during all that had happened down in the hot springs pool. And my half-slumbering mind went off musing free-range regarding what might be happening right now. Was Mahi perhaps daring enough to do something quite intimate with the jade, all alone somewhere? Would she experiment? Was she that weird? Would she test it inside her just to see how it felt? It was too much for me to imagine Mahi doing something like that, even if the act itself was basically harmless and natural. And that was when I got to thinking some really strange thoughts. Like if I had that jade piece here with me right now, and I was a woman rather than a man, would I be tempted to go ahead and stick the thing into my own most intimate sexual realms? At what level was the human body actually a bioenergetic receptor sensitive to subtle emanations? And who could resist the impulse to experience from the inside out whatever might be emanating from that ancient phallic hunk? I finally felt myself remembering what had actually happened down in the hot springs pool, right at that blast-off instant when 200 million Hadley polywogs had taken off swimming like champs, drawn unerringly by some quantum sexual force upward toward the ultimate male goal. And here's the part that still was grabbing me. Right as I was coming, I swear I'd felt my personal awareness suddenly expanding exponentially until I found myself way out somewhere in the high heavens, merging with some vast angelic presence, some quantum spiritual entity that had suddenly opened and taken me in, and its presence was still vibrating deep within me as I drifted off into sleep. <laughs> 